This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And ahead of the holiday weekend, we're going to visit three parts of the state where visitors flock by the millions to get in touch with nature, but mix crowds with bad behavior, and there may not be enough nature to go around. How are the people who manage these places dealing with the crush? We're going to start with Conundrum Hot Springs, which is a big party destination. The hot springs are an eight-mile hike into the Maroon Bell Snowmass Wilderness. But to Karen Schroyer, who's the district ranger in that area, that does not stop people, does it, that long hike? No, it doesn't, Ryan. Uh, People are willing to carry up um, tremendous amounts of of weight with all kinds of things that you can't imagine <laughs> to these hot springs. And it's a haul in. And then, unfortunately, it has become a bit of a party site. They carry all sorts of things we can't even imagine. Will help us imagine <laughs> those things. What are they? Well, recently, even last year, we, we, we had a local reporter here that we took up to Conundrum Hot Springs and happened to run into a bachelor party. And um, there was a blow-up doll in the hot springs with the which the with the bachelor's party, um, cases of beer hauled in, um, lots of alcohol, and unfortunately, a lot of that is left behind for our wilderness rangers to carry out. A blow up doll, Mike, and it was just left there. Yeah, it was. It was left there along with um, along with a lot of garbage and a lot of um, you know human waste problems that that we deal with up there as well. So our wilderness rangers are spending a tremendous amount of time cleaning up after people. Um, We carried out over 500 pounds of garbage from the area last year, as well as just burying dozens and dozens of piles of human waste. And we felt like it was was time to, to just make some management changes up there. We're going to talk about those management changes shortly. So you're saying it's not just a question of what people carry in to Conundrum Hot Springs, but what they don't carry out with them. It would normally be their responsibility to carry out, just to sort of put it bluntly, their poop. We we encourage people to use what we call wag bags, which are available at the trailheads. And they are, they're waste bags that people can actually carry their human waste out of the area with. And... Um, we will continue to offer those wag bags with this new management plan for free and ask people to carry out their human waste as well as all of the all of the things that they take in with them to the wilderness and that's part of a big part of this new management plan is just the outreach and education efforts that we've got with it lots of education to do i think in in many of the places that we're going to visit today and our second destination is hanging lake near Glenwood Springs that's in the White River National Forest. Chris, people flock there to see those stunning waterfalls, that crystal clear water, which presumably people want to keep crystal clear. And the district ranger there is Aaron Mayville. Aaron, what sort of bad behavior are you seeing at Hanging Lake? Well, yeah, you mentioned the uh, the crystal blue water. We've uh, We've tried for years now to keep people out of it. It's a it's a beautiful, natural travertine lake. It's a limestone deposit that deposits at the bottom of the lake and really gives it its color and its clarity. Yeah. And um, feet kicking can damage the travertine, for one. Oils from human skin can kind of change and degrade the water quality. Um, so that's, that's some of the things we see at the lake. Along the trail, um, with the numbers of people we see there, 
the trails actually widened over the years. People walking around one another and, and queuing at various pinch points. <gasps> so we actually see trail widening. Um, we've seen vandalism, kind of the, the normal, that kind of normal swath of that. And then in the parking lot, um, people can't find parking spots. They drive for hours, get there. And the worst behavior, we see fights break out, people fighting over parking spots. So, um, yeah, a lot of people crawling all over that place. You mean there are fist fights in the parking lot? There have been, yeah. People saving spots for others. And I, I got there first and... Um, it's been a management challenge. We've we've curbed a lot of that over the last several years with uh, with some really good seasonal rangers down there, just to try to manage some of that chaos. But um, yeah, the the visitor experience starts can start off in a in a bad way, you know, if there's fights in the parking lot. Aaron, you talked about vandalism, and it it almost sounded second nature to you, like and the usual vandalism. What what, what do you mean by vandalism? Well, I'm. Things like you might imagine, um, you know, people carving their names or, or things in the wooden bridges, the wooden benches along the way. Um, we've seen that. We see that pretty regularly. Every year we have to actually sand down the bridges and benches um, in order to take care of that. Um, but we also see it carved into trees, spray painted on rocks last year. Um, that that story got, got some legs with yeah. folks. Um, people weren't very happy about that, as understandably. Yeah, Hanging Lake has really been in the news a lot lately. I mean, I think about the photo shoot that happened on the lake. You're not supposed to go in the lake. And uh, there was like this outdoor clothing, active wear photo shoot there. Yeah, that uh, that also got made its way around social media and, uh, and, and, and the state. Um, yeah, it was a photo of someone taking a photo in the lake. It was um, caught red-handed. I will say that the company apologize and, and work pretty well with us after the fact. But, you know, that's just one example. The The numbers are, are pretty staggering. It's it, six, not six years ago, 50,000 people visited Hanging Lake in 2012. Last year, that number grew to 185,000. So wow. in not a long, in not a sh- long period of time, those numbers have really grown. Really grown. Okay. Our third stop today, Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs, those breathtaking red rock formations that people can't seem to resist climbing or vandalizing. There's a theme developing here. Matt Mayberry, you oversee the park and uh, tell us about some of the problems you're seeing at Garden of the Gods, which I imagine is also getting more popular. Yes, we are seeing very similar um, um, conditions that are happening elsewhere in the state. Our visitation has grown tremendously uh, as well. Um, partly because we've been better able to track those visitors um, through car counters and the like, but also just because Colorado Springs has become more of a destination and there are more people living in Colorado. So last year we had 6 million visitors um, in the park and 1.2 million cars um, inbound into the park. Um, and those, you know, those visitors are, are wanting to be there to see the, the, the glorious sights of, of Garden of the Gods, to experience um, nature in Colorado Springs. But that also creates management challenges. Um, parking, uh, as has been mentioned, uh, is at a premium, uh, especially during the height of the day um, from 10 until 3 and, and now stretching beyond that. Um, we get backups that extend from the main parking area, which is in the central garden, yeah. to uh, all the way out to the main road into the garden. And so um, that's not the kind of visitor experience we want. 
Um, and uh, we're working to try to improve that. And that's not necessarily bad behavior. That's just folks who are really interested in the park. What are you seeing in terms of people who are just disrespecting Garden of yeah, the Gods? All of our parks um, in the Colorado Springs Parks, Recreation, and Cultural Services Department are are challenged with um, rogue trails, uh, people creating their own trails. Social trails is another way of, of putting it. Um, and in we live in a very delicate environment. Um, once a trail is cut, um, even if it's not intended to create environmental damage, it does over time. And it's hard for our uh, plant life to recover. Um, so managing those social trails, keeping people confined to appropriate trail systems um, is a big part of our challenge. Um, Garden of the Gods features a rock called Signature Rock, um, which um, the signatures on there are historic signatures that date back all the way to uh, the gold rush in 1858. Huh. Um, and we have had to stop interpreting um, that, that site um, stop encouraging people to look at it because they want to do the same thing. They want to follow uh, pace. And these are sandstone structures that are very easy to carve into. Um, and so managing people from uh, from that kind of uh, graffiti and damage to the natural environment is a challenge. And overall, we are just – we have a very um, difficult balance between wanting people to be here. Tourism is a big part of our economy but also wanting to protect our resources and our parklands. Um, and that is a, a huge challenge for us. You also have people scrambling up the rocks without permits because it's not that you can't climb anywhere in Garden of the Gods. It's that you need to be allowed to do so. Is that right? Yeah, just about any day you'll see people um, technical climbing um, within the rocks. Um, a lot of our visitors enjoy just watching that process. Um, occasionally you see people peeking up from the very a pinnacle of one of the formations. Um, but what we struggle with is scrambling, um, which is unpermitted climbing. Anything over 10 feet off the ground is technically illegal. Huh. Um, and people will, um, and I will admit, when I first came to the Garden of the Gods in 1982, uh, um, we did the same thing uh, when I was uh, a younger person. Okay. Um, but the, the cha- and, and it just seems to draw people. But the challenge is people can get up, but oftentimes cannot get down. And so we have a lot of uh, emergency rescue coming into the to the park to help extract people um, from dangerous conditions. Also, if you have afternoon rain showers, you know we get those quite often. Those rocks become very slippery, and a condition going up could be a very different condition going down. And of course, we want our visitors to be safe, um, and helping them to follow our rules is part of that. Okay, so that's the picture from Garden of the Gods. Why don't we talk about, well, dimensions of the problem and then get into the solution here. Uh, Part of that, uh, as you have seen it in your respective areas, is some regulations, some management. But part of that is education and just imploring people to behave better. So let's talk about uh, Conundrum Hot Springs and the new permit system there, which is aimed at controlling overnight use in particular, Karen. Is that right? Why is that the focus? Yes, that's correct. While, while we realize we have a tremendous amount of day use as well in the Maroon Bell Snowmass Wilderness, the overnight use is what we know is causing the greatest impact on the ground. So we've developed a an adaptive management plan that uses thresholds and different indicators to help us 
adapt in the future with different management changes as as we move forward. Okay, and, that, that sounds um, kind of processy to me. Does that just mean that it's, <laughs> it's a flexible plan that might be able to... It is to... a flexible plan. Okay. That's, that's, the, that's the beauty of it. And it allows us to um, use management actions that are anywhere from maybe um, restricting dogs in the wilderness to designating specific campsites where people have to camp to actually in the term or in the case of Conundrum Hot Springs, we are implementing an overnight permitting system. And that permitting system allows for 17 designated campsites each night to be filled with people anywhere from from two to 10 folks in a group can stay in those campsites. And so it will dramatically reduce the number of people that will be camping in the Conundrum Hot Springs area each night throughout the season. The idea there, to focus especially on those overnight stays, is I imagine that's a source of a lot of the the detritus that you see come morning. Yeah, that's right. That's when that's when our wilderness rangers get to work. Is usually in the morning, as you know, as people have packed up and already left their sites. They'll they'll move into those sites, and unfortunately, that's when they're having to to clean up some of the messes that are left behind. But we also hope that through this um, permitting system on Recreation.gov, where folks go to get their permits, we've got a lot of resources for education and information, a good leave no trace video for folks to watch before they get their permits, and um, we're hoping that they get educated before they get up there on on some of those leave-no-trace ethics so that they'll be less clean up after they leave. That leave-no-trace campaign, uh, which is statewide, uh, not only for those in Colorado visiting stuff in their own backyard, but presumably getting that message out to tourists from out of state who may not have a lot of experience in the outdoors, uh, okay, at Hanging Lake, we've heard about the the fights that break out over parking, and uh, there is a plan to cap the number of daily visitors at Hanging Lake. There'd even be a shuttle to the trailhead during peak months, maybe to ease some of that parking strain. I'm curious, Aaron, if you think this is a locals' problem or a out-of-state visitor problem, or if that's not even the right lens to be looking at this through, if maybe I'm unnecessarily pitting people against each other. No, it's a, it's a it's a fine question. It's actually one we get quite often. Um, you know, we in in 2012 we actually put together a stakeholder group of local kind of managers: the Colorado Department of Transportation, Glenwood Springs Forest Service, uh, City of Glenwood Springs, the Forest Service, etc. And it really started to get arms wrapped around this this problem. The, one of the first things we did was a capacity study and surveys and just gathered data. And what the data showed was that about 80%, a large number of our visitors to Hanging Lake come from the Front Range. Um, and we think that's a, a function of a couple things. One, uh, you know, I mentioned that growth in visitation over the last several years. I think the word's kind of out. Uh-huh. The secret's kind of out. It's a bucket list destination. It's, of course, as you mentioned, it's a beautiful lake. I understand why. Um, and the local visitation's actually gone down a little bit because of some of the issues and problems we've seen with the crowding. Um, so it's definitely not one or the other. It's, we definitely see visitation from both and from international visitors all over the country uh, and all over the world. Um, so I think, I think but, what I yeah, hear you saying is that if, if, if you are listening to this and think, 
my goodness, it's it's all of those out-of-staters and maybe all of those recent transplants. It's really just not as clear-cut as that. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Look, okay. the, the White River National Forest sees almost 15 million visitors a year. Um, and it's due to beautiful places like Hanging Lake or Conundrum, um, as Karen mentioned. Um, but we're on the I-70 corridor. And uh, those those visitors are coming and uh, show no signs of stopping. So, And they come from all over. Well, Karen Schroyer uh, at Conundrum Hot Springs and Matt Mayberry at Garden of the Gods, what do you notice about the people who may be engaged in this bad behavior who are, in fact, leaving quite the trace? Karen at Conundrum? Yeah, Ryan. Well, one of the things I do want to emphasize is that the vast majority of our visitors are are responsible visitors that that just do a great job of leaving no trace when they're out there. Um, the, the increase in that visitation that we've had over the last couple of decades just means that it, it only takes a small percentage of people oh. to create those impacts out on the ground. So, you know, we're reaching out to everyone, but we are focusing our education efforts on a very small percentage of people that are creating a pretty significant impact out there. And what do you know about them? Anything? Are they young? Are they, we, have, yeah. we have visitors from all over the nation visit the Maroon Bell Snowmass Wilderness. Places like Conundrum and the Four Pass Loop and the, the hike from Aspen to Crested Butte are absolutely stunning places to visit. And they, they have become, like Aaron said, bucket list checkoffs that people want to visit. So it's a great variety of people that visit these wilderness areas. And our, our local people um, still visit these areas as well. They, they love these areas, and, and they're, they're very pleased to see these management changes. Okay. I'm asking you to name a culprit, but I, I think it's not as easy as I'm making <laughs> it out to be. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt Mayberry at, at Garden of the Gods, I, I think this question of access and making sure that as many people who want to see these places can um, versus managing these spaces and, you know, maybe permitting and having shuttles and allowing, you know, more limited access at peak times. It it is such a, a tough balance to strike. I mean, I can hear people saying, listen, this is mine. I'm a taxpayer. These are my lands. Talk to me a little bit, just philosophically, about how you've wrestled with that at Garden of the Gods. Well, and Ryan, just so your listeners understand, Garden of the Gods was given to the city of Colorado Springs um, for the joy of the people. And it is, by deed restriction, um, free and open to the public. So we can't charge an admission and use that as a management tool Um and so we we have to come up with other creative solutions. So last year, we conducted a transportation study to analyze what are some options for us. We are exploring a shuttle. In fact, we will be beginning a, a 90-day trial um, this weekend oh, wow. uh, offering, and it's not going to solve the parking issue. It's going to test whether people are willing to use a shuttle and whether if we expand this test program, which will be free, um, whether that could offer um, another tool in our toolbox to manage uh, visitation, but also to improve the visitor experience. Um, As part of that study, we did do a a visitor survey, a scientific survey last summer. Um, And, you know, we found that as we really knew going in, um, this is a beloved tourist destination. And so lots of -of out-of-towners. 
um, from all over the country, but all, all over the world. Um, people come and and they don't necessarily right now, it would appear, um, they're not troubled by um, the visitation or the crowding. Um, they didn't see that as a major concern or it wasn't keeping them away. Interesting. Um, and so that that's good to know, but we want to get out in front of it because we know this is only going to become more popular as our population increases. Um, and word about it, um, as was said earlier, gets out. Um, I want to do a, so, a quick round yeah. robin with each of you, just very quickly. We've talked about leaf note trace. I want a piece of advice from each of you on how we ought to behave better in the outdoors. What is the best just single nugget of advice? And Karen Schroyer, what's your view from Conundrum Hot Springs? What, what are you most eager to tell people? Well, I would emphasize that these are your lands. They belong to you. You own them and treat them like you own them. Take good care of them and, and save them for your children and their children. Well, that, I don't know if that's practical, but it's certainly a, a beautiful and po- poetic way to implore people to, to think of I this. I think as, it's very practical. I it? take care of my place. I own my place. I take good care of it. Right. Treat this as your home, I think, is what you're saying uh, in, in quite the poetic way. And what about you, Erin Mayville, at, at Hanging Lake? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I thought it was practical, Karen. I liked it. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's um, it's a matter of of just re- of respect. I, I think it's it's respecting the places, as Karen mentioned. You know, these are public public lands. We all own them. We all are we all are charged with being stewards of them as well. But it's respecting the place and respecting the land. It's also respecting each other. Um, and you know, whether it's a, a fight at, at uh, in the parking lot <laughs> or scratching your name in sandstone um, or leaving garbage behind. Um, respecting respecting each other enough to pick up after yourself, um, be kind to one another, and um, and you know really it's it, we, it's been said several times it's about the visitor experience we want it to be positive for folks. Th- these sound like the things that you learn in kindergarten, and it's like really just <laughs> you know be nice to people. Um, and very quickly, Matt Mayberry at Garden of the Gods, one piece of advice. I would just say. We work on these rule signs and every park has, you know, what are the standards? What are the regulations? Yeah. Read them. Find out um, where you're supposed to be, where you're not supposed to be. Also, find out if there's a way to enjoy the park in an off hour or off season um, so you can avoid the, the crush of the the middle of the summer. All right. Very grateful to all of you. And I just want to say that we asked folks on Facebook to name other areas <laughs> they feel are being loved to death. Two people named Pikes Peak, another Mm -hmm. Steamboat Rock and Seven Falls, also Rocky Mountain National Park. That includes a lot of land. And then many other folks said, no, we're not going to tell you because we don't want our (laughs) our favorite places to become loved to death. Uh, So a little more perspective on places that may be facing the same thing. Grateful to District Rangers Karen Schroyer and Aaron Manville talking about managing crowds at Conundrum Hot Springs and Hanging Lake, respectively, and from Colorado Springs, Matt Mayberry, with perspective on Garden of the Gods. Longmont tried to ban fracking, but the state's highest court said that was against the law. Now, city leaders are using a different approach to keep drill rigs outside city limits. Longmont will pay companies not 
to drill. Earlier this week, the city council approved a $3 million deal with two oil and gas operators. This effectively ends surface drilling. CPR's energy and environment reporter Grace Hood is here to fill us in on this novel approach. Hi, Grace. Hey there. So what exactly does the city get in exchange for the $3 million? What does that buy you? So two companies, Top Operating and Cub Creek Energy, they're going to abandon several active wells. They're going to give up a dozen future drilling sites and pull 80 well permits. And this deal moves one really major active well site away from a school in Longmont uh, outside of 70 city limits to Weld County. Take a listen to Mayor Brian Bagley. He says the deal is imperfect, but it's the best the city can do after, as you said, the state Supreme Court ruled that a fracking ban approved by Longmont voters was illegal. I'm not going to wait for the state to change the law. Um, I just think that this is the best we could have done. When it comes to local governments seeking more local control over oil and gas, there are really few answers coming from the state legislature. So the Colorado State Supreme Court ruling that outlawed long-term fracking bans really opened the door to new local control efforts across the front range. They are getting creative. Yes. Tell us about the limits of the Longmont deal, though. So the one thing that this doesn't do is end fracking inside city limits. Companies are still legally entitled by law to fracture rock hundreds of vertical feet underground Longmont to access their mineral rights. So while this moves drilling away from the surface inside Longmont, companies can still horizontally drill under the reservoir from Weld County. And Mayor Brian Bagley says he doesn't anticipate any other claims from other companies because they've really paid the only two companies that own mineral rights in the city with this $3 million. Okay, they're not expecting a lot more payouts in the future than to cover themselves. You say Longmont's approach is unique. What other ways, though, can cities establish more local control? The most common avenue I've seen in my reporting is passing local regulations. Local governments have really tested the limits since the 2016 Colorado Supreme Court ruling to see how far they can go. And the most recent legal dust-up happened in Thornton. In 2017, city council members there approved a suite of strict rules for drillers, some of which really went beyond statewide limits on things like setbacks. Oil and gas industry sued Thornton, and the court sided with the industry. In a statement, Colorado Oil and Gas Association President Dan Haley said, quote, Colorado communities have a guide from the state Supreme Court and the recent ruling in Thornton that shows clearly what they can and cannot do when it comes to oil and gas development. You mentioned setbacks to the distance of these operations from schools or homes, for instance. What is the industry saying about this Longmont deal specifically? Have they identified any legal concerns? COGA President Dan Haley says each party willingly entered into this contract, so he doesn't see legal issues. But he does say there's limits to the deal. What works for one operator and one community may not work for others. In my regular conversation with the governor, we asked about the Longmont deal and uh, Governor Hickenlooper has a similar view. Uh, here's what he had to say. It looks like the appropriate way that municipalities can deal with, you know, uh, drilling and fracking within their city limits. I've always said the biggest problem is this is someone's private property. And now what the cities are doing are saying, all right, if this is someone's private property, we will buy that private property. I don't see a problem with it. 
Any other unique solutions you see from local governments? Broomfield is a really interesting test case. They hammered out a memorandum of understanding, an agreement with the company Extraction Oil and Gas there, and it requires very strict measures on things like, say, quieter drilling rigs. Um, Then last fall, residents passed uh, this measure called Question 301, and it requires Broomfield to consider health, safety, public welfare when it considers future oil and gas development permits. City Council in Broomfield, very well aware of what happened in Thornton. Hmm. They're looking at whether they need to amend their law. And at the same time, they want to comply so they don't get sued by the industry. And I should say at the state level, the Martinez case currently in front of the Colorado Supreme Court could require state agencies to look more closely at health and safety when considering drilling permits. So that's really a developing story. As as oil and gas often is, (laughs) Grace Hood, as you know. Meantime, the city and county of Boulder are suing a few oil companies. What's their beef? I mean, I don't think of Boulder as a hotbed of drilling activity. It isn't. Most drilling on the Front Range happens in Weld County. Boulder sued ExxonMobil and Suncor for alleged reckless actions and damages related to causing climate change. And, you know, this is very similar uh, in line of thinking to communities along the coast that seek to connect sea level rise, oil and gas industry action. They're planning to seek damages related to wildfires, floodings, and uh, any planning efforts uh, related to those are seeking compensation. So um, Boulder is really one of the first communities to, f- to file lawsuits in the interior West. A number of industry groups are planning a forum on Thursday to discuss these climate lawsuits and what they see as some of the limitations. And they're suggesting that the lawsuits are really much more complicated. Okay. Grace, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Grace Hood, CPR's energy and environment reporter, talking about how Longmont got creative in curbing oil and gas operations. What happens after we die? And if there's a heaven, who gets in? Those are some of the heady questions students at Chatfield High School in Littleton have been asking, not of their teachers, but of religious leaders who visited campus. CPR attended the forum, which featured the Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, and Hindu faiths. Senior Artem Symbolist asked if the afterlife is an inclusive place. I was going to ask if you believe in an afterlife or next life. Do you believe that uh, everybody is welcome into that area as their own? The Muslim voice on the panel, Munir Ludin, was the first to answer. He's with the group Muslims Intent on Learning and Activism. For me, um, afterlife, I do believe in afterlife uh, because my religion teaches it. I do also believe that we are souls and that body is a temporary vehicle for this world. However the interpretation of the hereafter as a heaven and hell is not where I feel most comfortable with. As Muslims, we believe that you come from God, and to God you return. So the souls are part of God. If that's the case, we have a memory of God's presence and God's perfection. When we die in the hereafter, we face God again. And... That encounter suddenly makes us realize that whether we've been sort of on track or completely off track, and that that results either in happiness or truly suffering. Now, I have no idea what that track really is. I don't see a God that is a micromanager that is sitting there hoping and waiting to say, okay, well, I'm not going to catch you with a little mistake so I can exact punishment. 
Ledeen said the suffering doesn't come from God's punishment, but from an individual recognizing their own evil. Reverend Doug Hill told the group that he sees the afterlife not as something that happens to an individual, but as something that affects everyone. Hill is with Abiding Hope Church in Littleton, which is Evangelical Lutheran. In the New Testament, the word that's often translated as eternal doesn't mean eternal. It means into the ages, asionion. And what the early church was trying to do was to create a human culture that will live into the ages. And we then live into the ages. It's a humanity that collectively lives into the ages. Now remember, this is 2,000 years ago. The sense is, is if we don't, then we're going to end up at Gehenna. Gehenna is often translated as hell. Gehenna was the garbage heap outside of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is saying, look, if we choose to live selfish, divided lives, we're heading to Gehenna. He didn't mean after we die. He meant humanity is going to end up in the garbage dumps. But if we love, if we serve, then we have life into the ages. And that doesn't mean we go to heaven after we die. It means that humanity continues. Why do we have this mindset that some have to go to heaven and some have to go to hell? Some have to be in and some have to be out. And we use God's name to promote excluding people. Now, from a Jewish perspective, here's Rabbi Stephen Booth Nadav. He's with Wisdom House Denver, a group that focuses on interfaith work. What makes sense to me is that we are all sparks of the divine that get incarnated into a body. And that when I die, my body goes back to the earth, and and that spark, that soul, goes back to God. I don't think, personally, and this is me talking, I don't think that soul keeps identifying as Steve. I think that individuation goes away and that soul goes back and becomes part of the one. And so the focus in Judaism is on on this life. So this is a difference between some of our faiths is that we do have teachings about the afterlife, but basically the focus is on this life. What are you doing here now? Don't be so overly focused on what comes later. And finally, a Buddhist interpretation from Lisa Pettit of the Compassionate Dharma Cloud Monastery in Morrison. The idea from her that there really is no birth and no death. Think about the ocean. The waves come and they go, but they're never separate from the ocean. And so our lifetime, the way we perceive our lifetime is that it's that beginning of the wave is our birth and the end of the wave is our death. But we've never completely been separate. And if we see, oh, that's a different wave than me, we're losing that, that connection that's underlying all of it. Lisa Pettit, a Buddhist, is one of five faith leaders who answered student questions at Chatfield High School in Littleton. The Interfaith Forum is a fixture of the school's contemporary world issues class. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's one of the strangest stories in our state's recent history. Fourteen years ago, a man with a grudge left the small town of Granby in shambles. Marvin Hemeyer fortified a bulldozer with steel, concrete, and guns and went on a rampage, targeting people he thought were out to get him. This is from a TV report at the time. A news chopper surveys the scene. 
This man owned a business next to the concrete company that he had a long-standing beef with a concrete company in Granby, a very long-standing, decades old, it was described to us, and then he went after the concrete company first. He then made his way down Main Street of Granby and actually was taking out buildings as he passed, took out the t much of the town hall, took out the library, may have gone through the Liberty Bank, and actually looks like he might have punched in one side of a new Liberty Bank in Granby and came out the other. One of the people on Heemeyer's hit list was Patrick Brower. He's former editor and publisher of Granby's Sky High News. And he is with us to talk about his book, Killdozer. Welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Great to be here. I love your show. Oh, thank you. You, you start your book with Heemeyer's homemade tank uh, coming right for you and for the newspaper. Describe that moment for us. Well, Ryan, this was a big story for us, uh, tank going down the street, so we decided to cover it. And uh, when we saw it coming down the street in our direction, we went inside the building to wait for it to pass. But uh, unfortunately, it didn't pass. When he got in front of our building, he took a sharp right turn and slammed right into the front wall. I was in there with another editor uh, from Winter Park, and uh, the building literally started to collapse around us, and we turned tail and ran out of there as fast as we could. Were you okay? Yes, we were okay. But I like to tell people if I tripped, I wouldn't be here to tell that story because he completely demolished our building. My goodness. What was going through your mind at that point? Or well, maybe it was maybe nothing, right? It's just fight or flight? Well, really, my first thought was, what have we written to cause somebody to get this upset? Because at that time, we didn't really know for sure who it was driving this bulldozer tank. Um, when we found out that it was Marv Hemeyer for sure, which was only about 15 minutes later, uh, it started to make a little bit of sense, but not totally. Why did it make a little bit of sense? Well, uh, Marv and I had been on opposite sides of a variety of issues over the years, starting with the, the attempt to bring legalized gambling to Grand Lake. But that was all the way back in 1992. The newspaper was opposed. Marv was for it. He even launched a newspaper against ours to present his pro-gambling point of view. He accused us of being, you know, yellow journalists, uh, championing a bad cause, etc. That's where it started. You have a photo on the front of your book of the, the killdozer, as it became known. Will you describe it for us? Sure. Well, what it is, is it's a, uh, it's, uh, you can see in the background, the Sky High News building. Collapsed. Uh, completely collapsed. And in that area is where my office was located. Um Strangely enough, Marv had been in my office many times, giving me letters to the editor. Little did I know he was scoping out our building. <laughs> but uh, And in front, you'll see the actual killdozer itself, which is a Komatsu D-355A bulldozer, upon which Marv built a uh, steel-enshrouded cab. Uh, it's a layer of steel, then concrete, then another layer of steel, and it completely encloses the cab. There are firing ports. Um, you there can't. are firing points. Now, you would stick a gun out of those holes. Yes, uh, embrasures where he stuck the barrel of rifles out and uh, was able to fire out of those holes. He had a list of targets. So as, as special as you were in this, there were many others, apparently, that he had a beef with. Yeah, Marv uh, really had a beef with uh, his neighbors, uh, the Dochefs who uh, owned the concrete plant. And then he just went down the list of town board members who had deliberated on the hearings relating to the approval of that batch plant. And then he had other people who apparently at some time along his tenure in town had somehow made him angry. What was the scale of damage that he was able to exact? Well, by my figuring, it was uh, roughly around $10 million total damage. 
he either destroyed or very badly damaged 13 buildings in total. Um, it was a lot of damage. He totaled our building, completely totaled the newspaper building. He totaled your building. Uh, that must have been an interesting call to the insurance company. <laughs> you know, Ryan, we were lucky. We had good insurance, but many other people did not, and it cost them a lot of money. It cost us a lot of money, too, even after the insurance. What about the human toll? The human toll is mainly what I call sort of psychological. Uh, the people in Granby didn't really understand why Marv did this because— Let me just be clear. No one was killed. Yes. And no one was seriously injured. No one was killed or seriously injured except for Marv. He killed himself at the right. end of the rampage. I mean, that's an amazing idea that with that much destruction— no one lost their lives. Well, it's kind of a miracle. He did shoot at people. He shot at uh, Cody Dochev. He shot at uh, three police officers. He actually tried to blow up the town shooting at propane tanks in eastern Granby and then shooting at a nearby electrical transformer in an attempt to ignite the gas escaping from the tanks. Luckily, he did not hit any of the tanks. He did leave behind quite a bit of evidence, writings, even recording. So here's Hemeyer from Tapes He Left Behind. God built me for this job. He rewarded me for 45, 50 years with the lifestyle that I am so thankful for. And, and, and it's unfortunate, the poor people in Granby, so many of them were so jealous of my lifestyle that I could come and go as I pleased. Well, God blessed me in advance for the task that I am about to undertake. That is Marv Hemeyer, who is behind the Kill Dozer, a rampage that happened in June 2004 in Granby, Colorado. We're speaking with the author of a book about the Kill Dozer, Patrick Brower, who is also on Hemeyer's hit list. What else did he leave behind that gave you some sense of what was going on in his head? Well, he also left behind a series of writings that he left in the shed where he built the uh, Kill Dozer. And it starts out with... Uh, Things like, if only Cody had bought my property for $66,000, I wouldn't have to be so unreasonable. And it just went down the list. He highlighted his beefs uh, with the town council, with uh, the local district judge who did not uh, rule in favor of his lawsuit against the town. Uh, he talks about me in his writings. It's a very sort of candid revelation of his twisted motives behind this uh, action. Had he had a criminal record before? No criminal record. There were a few civil actions, but nothing major. Do you think it was mental illness in some regard? I think that uh, an edge of narcissism might have been involved, but uh, my gut feeling is that Marv decided he was going to do this out of feeling of pride, anger, and disgust. As far back as 2001, once he decided he was going to do it, he had a revelation in a hot tub where God told him to do it. And from that point on, he decided he was going to do it no matter what happened. He had a revelation in a hot tub? Yes. Uh, he uh, explains it in his tapes very clearly where God said he wanted Marv to do this. And uh, he was sitting in a hot tub shortly after it became clear to him that he was not going to win his case against the batch plant and probably not win his lawsuit. During the attack, you saw a young man pumping his fist in the air, cheering the tank on. And that cheering never really stopped. I mean, tell us more about the support for Hemeyer. Well, it started almost immediately. Not only did I see that guy kind of walking down the street celebrating the violence of it all. Uh, at that moment, there was a radio bro broadcast going on where a woman was defending Hemeyer as a nice guy, a teddy bear of a guy who would only do this and attack people's property, not try to hurt people. 
it went crazy from there. Uh, immediately, there was a, a blog uh, posted by a guy in Arizona called No BS News, where he basically says that uh, Marv was a victim of corrupt town government and that uh, uh, the police uh, actually killed him, that he didn't kill himself, that uh, the whole town was corrupt, that Marv was justified, that he wasn't trying to hurt people, that he was only just trying to damage property. This just took off. Here are your words from the book. Hemeyer morphed into a hero who typified the image of the lone American patriot standing up to the intrusions of government and the media with guns god and armed and armored bulldozer and a list of grievances. Uh, we found YouTube videos with titles like Marvin Hemeyer's Valiant Last Stand, and uh, he celebrated in this rather hard-to-listen-to punk song. little hard to make out the lyrics, but sometimes you just want to knock it all down, plow your whole town into the ground. Is there something to learn in this political moment from what happened in Granby? Because it, it feels like a moment in which it's very in vogue to talk about um, just the overreach of government or the, you know, government in our lives or you know, the swamp. Yes. I mean, Ryan, I really think that what's going on here is that with Hemeyer, people have a predisposition to have a gripe with government, whether it's over a speeding ticket, whether it's over a petty battle over something with the town hall. And, and maybe this is a love of the little guy. I mean, that right. goes back to David and Goliath. It does come back to that typical trope. But then you get people creating these false narratives to justify the violent actions. And that's what's really disturbing about this. I sat through all the hearings. I was there. I knew Marv. Let me tell you, the town wasn't corrupt. The town wasn't out to get them. They've been over backwards to try to work with him, and this is what they got. So the spin is what's really dangerous, you think? Exactly. It's the way people perceive the incident and how they glorify him into a hero. That's the issue. Part of what you want to achieve with this book, Killdozer, is to set the record straight, uh, get rid of some of the myth. Yeah, it, it is an attempt. Uh, I'll tell you, I just saw a posting uh, based on a piece in a, a thing called Out There Colorado. The first eight responses were, don't believe this fiction. It's not true. Uh, Marv was picked on by the government and he was right to fight back. And it just continues on that vein. And it's all over. He killed himself, as you told us. Yes, he did. What do you make of, of that ending of his demise? Well, this is what I think. Everybody says that Marv uh, deliberately did not try to kill people, that he was just out to destroy property. The truth is, is that if you shoot at people and you knock down buildings, you're probably going to kill somebody. But he had no way of knowing whether he did or not. I think Marv might have thought, heck, I don't know whether I killed anybody or not, but if I did, I'm going to jail for the rest of my life. Perhaps that's why he killed himself. Mm. Police had shot at him, right? To, to What was the law enforcement response? And, and was it inadequate? Or Well, I mean, yeah. It, it, I don't know if you ever prepare for the you know, a <laughs> fortified bulldozer coming down. Well, let me tell you this. The firearms available to most police were uh, uh, absolutely ineffective against the dozer. I don't think any rounds got in there. Um, so... Their, their response in that regard was ineffective. Hindsight says, oh, if we just had a can of spray paint, we could have painted over the cameras he had mounted on the outside. Uh, maybe we could have injected oxygen into the, the engine to, to over-rev it. So that stage of the response was ineffective, although they did do something really good. They evacuated the town and got people out, and that saved lives. How long did the rampage last? Roughly two and a half hours. 
My goodness, that must have felt like an eternity. It was, and it's sort of one of the more surreal things about it is you could just stand there and look at the thing trundling past you, and there wasn't much you could be done. I mean, I saw uh, sheriff's deputies and troopers shooting at this thing all to no effect. Do you think this is terrorism? I think it's a form of terrorism. Uh People were reluctant to use that term early on because at that time there were riders and insurance policies that excluded terrorism. Oh, interesting. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing this story with us. Do you, do you, do you have nightmares about this? Uh, I just feel uneasy about the way people find it so easy to believe false narratives to justify their biases. Patrick Brower is the former editor and publisher of Granby's Sky High News. His book, Killdozer, tells the story of Marvin Hemeyer in his rampage on Granby in 2004. I should say that Brower is also a consulting uh, consultant, that is, on a major documentary about this event, so it'll be coming to screens at some point soon. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.